Hey everyone, and welcome back to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you to navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more clarity, connection, and community. This week's episode is about another C word. No, not that one. It is about courage. It's about having the courage to face the things that we find hard in life and about ourselves. It's about how so often when life happens around us with all of its challenges and annoyances and pain and pressure, we want to hide. We want to wish it wasn't happening or make it go away. And that is so human. It takes so much strength to think different thoughts and take different action, to ask ourselves, how can this absolutely awful thing that is happening help me learn? It helps us to ask If this thing was put here only for my growth, what would be its reason? I am in awe of anyone that can take life's challenges and turn them on their head like that. And this week's guest, Megan Rose Lane, embodies that courage. The courage it took her to face and heal from her life-threatening eating disorder to leave a relationship with her really young daughter when it wasn't working. The courage it took her to get out of debt and buy her own home and the courage it took to face a financial mistake last year that nearly cost her everything. I hope with this episode that it leaves you feeling a little bit more courageous, even 1% more courageous and a little bit braver, whatever that might mean to you. Here it is. It's so funny because I feel like I know you so well because I followed you for years. And we actually haven't chatted on the podcast before. So I'm so excited to just dive into you and what you've learned and what you're learning and what you're unlearning. I'm really excited. So thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited myself. It's going to be a great chat. I can just feel it already. What's January been like for you? Are you a goal setter? Have you set New Year's goals? Yeah, I'm a goal setter in a way of like, I like short-term goals, but long-term goals, you know, people have like a five-year plan. I can't do the five-year plan thing. I can't plan that far ahead. I have to go with the flow. I'm a very kind of like, what's happening today? Like I don't even have much of a, a week plan. I kind of just go with the flow. Like my PA is amazing because she gives me like a daily or like weekly list of everything that's happening. And I just look at it on the day and I'm like, okay, this is what's happening today. So like, I find it really hard to actually think very far ahead. So like for January, I set the goal that I was going to meditate every day because last year I didn't meditate. And I've been meditating for years because I used to have panic attacks. It was like one of the things that was really important to me. But last year was a stressful year and I just put the meditation on the back burner and I just didn't go near it. And then the less I did it, the harder it got. So this January, I was like, I've got to get back into it. So I set myself a 40 day challenge to meditate every day, every morning for 40 days. <laughs> so I've done that and I'm well proud of myself. I'm on day 31 today and I'm still going. Tell us what you've learned from that 31 days. I set a word for the year. So rather than setting like specific goals, I've got a few goals that I like want to achieve, but I'm not like hung up on, but I picked a word for the year. I felt that's more powerful. And my word was devotion. And that's what it's taught me. It's that like when you have the energy of devotion in something, because it came from the heart, like you really wanted it. It has value. It's like meditation for me. The value is infinite because it's inner peace. That's what I get from it. So I value it so much. 
And when you really value something and you devote yourself to it, it's actually easy. It becomes easy because this is really strong, loving energy behind why you're showing up and doing it. It's not just a goal that you set because you're like, oh, like everyone on Instagram is doing it. Or like, you know, there's this girl on TikTok and she's, you know, making green smoothies every day. So I'm going to do the same. And it's like, it's not flimsy. It's not rooted in fear or comparison. It's like, I'm devoted to this practice. And I think that's what it's taught me. Because I used to be one of those people who never finished anything. And that was one of my stories. It was like, I don't complete things. I always give up halfway through. I never see it to the end. And I think anybody who struggles with that should kind of like experiment with devotion. What is really interesting about what you said is you said it was a really stressful year and I put meditation down and I do this thing. And I think it's pretty universal at the times when we most need to have our own back and do those practices and those little things, whether it's meditation or going for a walk or going for a run or journaling, whatever it is. What is that tendency in us that when we most need it, we're also most likely to not do it? It's like a sabotage, isn't it? It's like almost like a bit of a self-sabotage of like everything's gone to shit. For me anyway, from my experience last year, as I kind of fell into a victim mentality a little bit. And I was like, oh God, everything's out of my control and fuck it, it's all gone wrong and I'm, I'm so stressed. And you almost can get addicted to that story, to that feeling. And even though it feels uncomfortable, there's a sense of safety in it because you've become so used to it. I always see meditation as like, Imagine that you're like on the ocean and there's like a huge storm happening and there's this chaos everywhere, waves crashing, there's winds blowing. At any moment that you really want to, you can dive under the water and go rest at the bottom of the ocean where everything is still and calm and peaceful. But most of us forget that that's even an option and we stay sucked into the chaos that's happening outside. We get sucked into the drama and the reactivity. And it's almost like trying to control this massive storm as a single person. And that can be really exhausting, but I think it becomes a little bit addictive. And the more stressed you get, the less likely you are to actually want to go down to the bottom and have that peaceful time and do things that help you because you're kind of trapped in that cycle. It takes a lot of strength and self-awareness to kind of pull yourself back out. And also I find like when you're in one of those stressful periods of life that I've got more cortisol in my body. So I'm naturally just feeling more sort of like energized and buzzed and I want to do action. I don't want to do inaction. I want to do action. I want to solve it, fix it, move through it. The last thing I want to do when I feel like things are swirling is like go for a walk. <laughs> I don't want to go for a walk. I want to sit on my emails and be ready to respond. It's that energy, isn't it? It's like, it's so counterintuitive to do the opposite of what we think we want to do. But I think that's the place we've got to get to. Definitely. It's like a masculine overdrive of what can I do? And it's also very controlling as well. It's like, how can I micromanage everything so that it works out for me? When really one of the most powerful energies that we could ever step into is surrender, that really feminine, receptive, like, you know what? I'm going to leave it all alone. I'm going to walk away and I'm going to trust that this will all figure itself out. And that by me actually getting involved too much and like interfering, I'm stopping things from actually settling. I'm keeping them in the chaos and I'm feeding the chaos. And ultimately, what is it that I want to feel? If I want to feel peace, I want to feel calm. Why can't I choose that now in this moment rather than fighting to get there? So tell us a bit more about last year then, about how it felt for you, because I think so many mothers listening will just completely resonate on a really big level, divorce, loss, bankruptcy, and on really micro levels, just stress, 
every day, those micro stresses that we have as mothers, I think everyone will relate to that feeling. So can you unpack that a bit more for us and how you got yourself out of it? Oh my God, last year was a shit show financially for me. I've gone from being broke, getting pregnant and thinking, oh my God, I've got to sort my life out. I need to make money. How am I going to do this? To like fully committing every single day to completely changing my mindset around money and finances, healing all of the limiting fears and beliefs around it, really stepping into my power, making money, doing what I love, get to be me. All the jobs I've had where I have literally sold my soul to earn hardly anything and showing up to jobs where I literally would cry in the toilet, you know, every day working overtime and night shifts and all this stuff. And I was so ready to take my power back around money. And I did it. I was making more than I've ever made. And I was so proud of myself. I had a child. So that was my driving force, really. It was like having Esme was like, I have to be a responsible adult. I have to make money. I've got to buy us a house. Like I've got to get in that zone. And it took years. It took years to build. And I had saved up and got myself into a really good situation where I was like, I feel strong and I feel supported. I feel secure. I feel good single, like doing it all on my own. Like that was like a really big journey. And then last year I was changing accountants because my PA was not happy with my accountants. She was like, they don't respond. They're not great. Let's change accountants. So in the process of doing that, she had to call HMRC and basically get everything legally changed over. Now HMRC were like, hang on a minute. Taxes haven't been paid for X, Y, Z, these times and dates. And I'm thinking what the hell is going on? Like I owe tax. I had no idea. I thought my accountants were doing all of this. Like they were asking me on the day, like, can we pay this and pay that? And I just thought everything was under control. I didn't check it because I was always like, I can do the whole making money thing, but I don't want to look at my finances. That was my thing. It was like, I'm good at making money. I'm not holding myself back. I know my worth. Like I'm charging my worth, things like that. So the making money wasn't the problem. It was holding it, managing it, getting involved with my accountants, like asking questions. So I had no idea, but they would be in for years that I'd had them. They were being negligent and it landed me in so much debt. And um, yeah, like the repayments were crazy. I thought I was going to move out of my house, move back in with my parents. Like I hit rock bottom because Esme was starting school. And I'd spent years building myself to this place where I felt so free and independent and I was so proud of myself and it was hard. And all of a sudden in like a moment, it was gone. Wiped my savings. I was just crying every day. I felt like such a shit mom. I think the guilt was like a lot. I just felt silly. I was like, I really thought I'd nailed it with this money thing. (laughs) The truth is there was a huge piece missing that I hadn't really considered. Thank God. I got a new accountant and he redid all of my accounts and actually I didn't know anything. So it was like a miracle. It all turned around very quickly because he came in and was like, none of this is right. They've done all your accounts wrong. They weren't counting any of my expenses and there was just so much that was wrong. So I ended up getting rebates and now I'm owed rebates. I cannot tell you the emotional roller coaster that happened last year. When I think back to it, I feel like I'm like watching myself go through it. Like I almost disassociated a bit because I was in so much stress. And I think back to it, I'm like, what was that weird dream that I was in last year? (laughs) Like the whole year, it was just like a nightmare, roller coaster. Even when I found out that the debt wasn't actually owed and that it was all filed wrong and everything, I still didn't want to believe it because I was like, I don't want to hang on to any kind of hope because I can't deal with any more disappointment. So it was weird, really. Yeah. It was a wild year. (laughs) There's so much in that, isn't there? And I think 
So many people listening will have had that experience. One of when you think you've sussed something like parenting, and then it just completely changes again. And I think there's also a beautiful, you know, and I know that you'll talk to this, a beautiful, deeper spiritual lesson that we do get shown in really horrible, hard, painful, frustrating ways. We do get shown the places where we're still not, you know, it's like that curriculum. It's like that sort of life school. And sometimes I just wish it wasn't like that. I really do. (laughs) But I think it just is, isn't it? And it is. And it's, would I take it back now? Like, no, (laughs) that's hard to say. But like the things that I've learned from that experience last year, even though it was torture, like some of it was really torture. Like there were some deeply, deeply low days. I feel like I've been in some kind of finance school, like yeah, life school, but finance school. And now I have this incredible, amazing accountant and he and I just get on so well. And all the things I didn't used to understand that I ignored, he's explained and now everything makes sense. So I'm now in such a better position to build wealth. And it's like, I'm just glad it happened then and not when I had way more money in the future. So yeah, I mean, (laughs) do I regret it? Do I want to take it back? No, but yeah, it was shit. And there is, there's lessons in everything. What are some of the big lessons that you took from it? I would say, I feel like deep down I knew that I wasn't fully in my power, but I ignored it. And I waited for it to kind of blow up because it was like deep down, I was like, you know, I don't really like managing my finances. I don't really know what's happening over there. I'm just trusting these random men with my money. And I think deep down, I knew there was like a niggle of like, you're not fully in your power here. Like, I know you don't want to look at it, but sometimes we don't have to go through the horrendous, painful lesson. We can avoid it by actually addressing the little niggle before it blows up. And I think that's a big lesson. Someone said this amazing analogy, which has always struck me about a dripping tap. You can just ignore it because it's not that big of a problem. It's really easy to ignore. It's like, I'll deal with that tomorrow. And then suddenly it's a flood. That's it. But it happens in relationships too. You know, like when you get that feeling that your relationship's not quite right and it's like, "Mm," and then that's the drip, isn't it? It's like, oh, this thing and there's this thing. And then you ignore those drips and you're not. And then one day it does turn into a flood and then you have to leave. And it's a lot more dramatic than it would have been if you'd have just listened to the drip in the beginning. Is that what happened in your relationship? I would say, yeah, it was drippy. (laughs) It was drippy. It was drippy for a while. (laughs) Lots of drips, lots of drips, lots of floods. (laughs) But I think one of the hardest things, I do have like grace and compassion for myself through that because I just had a baby. For that first year, I was breastfeeding and I needed all the support and help that I could get. So I think for me, I let it drip until the point where I was like, I can actually break free now. It was a flood. (laughs) The moment was definitely a flood. The week was a flood. The months following were a big flood. It was a lot. But it happened in the right timing, I would say. If I didn't have a baby at the time, I would have left sooner. But I did. So it was a difficult choice. It's always difficult, isn't it? And I think especially when there's children involved, it takes an awful amount of courage. I really have so much respect and admiration for, you know, particularly mothers who make that decision because I think it impacts financially from the support system, from even the logistical aspect of, you know, managing all of that as a co-parent. It's such a sign of worth to me. As they will say, I am worth a relationship that serves me, that feels loving to me, that feels right to me. It's huge. It's really huge. I don't actually think we talk about that enough, the courage that it takes. 
because of what you're losing in the process. And that's the hardest thing when you're choosing growth. Well, you do have to mourn, you have to grieve the loss of what, you know, you thought you had when you got into that situation. You're like, let's have a baby together. Or you chose to do that. And it was like, I imagine this life for us and it was gone. And it was like, letting go of that in itself I mean the financial part is really important I think that's why the drip took a while as well because it's like I had to save up to be able to afford to live on my own and find a place and that was hard that was a stretch but you're right the self-worth piece is at the core of all of it that self-worth piece when you know what you deserve that will win every time life will meet you where you believe your worth is sitting at life meets you there so everything else arranges itself around that so many people are on this path, particularly those mothers listening to this podcast, of having a history, me included, of low worth, of not believing in myself, of not trusting in myself. For me, it's definitely not a one and done. It is a lifelong unlearning unfolding, as you just shared, in every area. But what would you say when you think back to that younger person that you were and to the person you are now, what have been the big markers along the way that have enabled you to really unlock that worth? spirituality for me was probably the moment there was like a moment I remember I had bulimia I was living in London I had bulimia it was getting out of control it had been out of control for years it was bad it was really bad it was every day constantly and it was for years and years I felt like I was falling apart my physical body but also like my emotions and everything was just like a big mess on the floor and I remember just sitting on the bathroom floor and I was so exhausted And I had this moment where I was like, I'm going to end up killing myself through this or I need to choose a different way. And in that moment, I prayed and I'd never prayed before. I just kind of looked up and I was like, if there's a God, if there is something, if there is anything that can help me, please, because I'm desperate. Like, I don't want to do this anymore and I can't, I don't have the power in me. I'm weak. I tried so hard and nothing seemed to work and I just couldn't. And in that moment, I surrendered to what, a higher power, whatever that might be. I didn't know what it would be at the time. And then after that moment, everything just started to magically rearrange itself. I would like find books and like random coincidences would happen and like synchronicities would happen. And I started to read a lot of Wayne Dyer books about kind of like spirituality and and what God means outside of religion and connecting to a higher power and learning about my soul and learning about how I'm more than a human and that my worth is infinite and that when we go behind the layer of human, there's a layer of consciousness. And in this layer of consciousness, we're all one and we're all connected and we're all worth the same. And I started to like have these like big breakthroughs, like big aha moments. All of a sudden, I just had this inner self-worth that came from such a deeper place than my human self just burst through me. And it just took over my life and everything just started to get better. I was like, I changed my job. I started making more money. I started just to have more confidence. I stopped making myself sick without even trying. It just happened as a byproduct because my self-worth was increasing so much that it got to a point where I was like, why would I hurt myself like that? My worth is too high. Like I would never. So those behaviors just didn't resonate with me anymore because I'd elevated my sense of self-worth so much. And it came from a deeply spiritual place. It had nothing to do with how I look. It had nothing to do with my achievements, had nothing to do with my body or anything. It was such a deeper place of self-worth. And that's where I was getting it from. 
So that for me was the biggest turning point. It was like when I stopped looking to the external world for validation, for reassurance that I was worth something, I got out of the diet culture trap and actually started to go deeper. And that was it. That's where I found it. This infinite well of self-worth that lives within every single one of us. And how do you remind yourself of that? Because I've had similar experiences, but I forget every single day that that's my truth. (laughs) I just forget that because, you know, the world is noisy and busy. And how do you stay connected to that? And what are some of the ways that it's been really challenged? Well, first of all, I feel like once you know that, you kind of can't go back. It's kind of like a balloon being stretched. You know, when you know something, then you can't unknow it anymore. So once you know that everybody on this earth has equal worth and that worth comes from somewhere way deeper than our human self and that you know that, I guess it's taking it from here and bringing it down into your body. So it's like all knowledge, we don't really know it until we are it, right? So we can read a hundred books and collect all of this information and knowledge and whatever. And then we think we know it, but we're not living it. We're not actually embodying it. So it's like, how can I start to actually practice in my day-to-day life, this knowing that I am as worthy as everybody else. We do have all the same worth that she doesn't deserve more than me and she doesn't deserve less than me and he's not doing, there's no difference between us. So how can I start to show up in a way that actually practices that knowledge? And for me, meditation is huge. I feel like when I talk about meditation, it's a bit cliche now. It's like, oh, meditate, but actually... There are so many ways that guided meditations for self-worth, for self-love. I do them on Insight Timer. I love Insight Timer. Have you tried it? No, I'm calm. I'm all about calm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Insight Timer, I think it's more spiritual. I've used calm and enjoyed it and I've used Headspace and loved it. But there's something about Insight Timer that for me is just so special. And there's a lot on there for like self-worth, confidence, self-love. So yeah, like immerse yourself in that language, in those ideas in those teachings connect with people on Instagram who talk about those things and let's have it as a constant reminder like we get to literally curate our lives now like what's around you what podcasts do you listen to what books are you reading like what Instagram pages do you follow and all of that has such an effect on us for that reminder of like yes you are a bad bitch you are so fucking powerful you are so beautiful you are so strong you are so amazing just surround yourself with that language and that kind of uplifting narrative and it becomes who you are, you know? How has motherhood intersected that for you? Because I know you talk a lot about, you know, having your daughter was such a deep catalyst for healing for you and, and not wanting to pass this on and wanting to be a different model. Tell us about what motherhood has unlocked in you. It just completely changed me as a person. I've said this before. When I gave birth, I felt like I was reborn in that moment. It was a very euphoric moment. I had, I had pethidin and I didn't really know where I was and what was going on. But I remember the moment I pushed her out. The rest of it, I don't remember too much. But I remember the moment that I actually pushed her out. And it was like, at that time, I wasn't practicing as like spiritually as I do now. I didn't have the deeper understanding. If I gave birth now, it looked very different. <laughs> but in that moment, I remember pushing her out. And it was almost like just, I felt like I was rebirthing myself at the same time, you know? And I just stepped into this new role, this new responsibility for another human. And I just think it turned me into the most compassionate, loving, forgiving, patient version of me. And the best version of me came out. Yeah, I was fucking tired. (laughs) I was so tired and I was so worn out. But I think wanting her to know her worth 
wanting her to never have to go through what I went through. Nobody taught me about self-worth growing up. I just don't remember. My parents were like really supportive and like lovely and kind and funny. And I got on with them really well. And we had such a close relationship, but I don't think there was anything about self-worth modeled to me, like healthy self-worth. And I don't blame them. That was a time of like really, really intense diet culture. Slimming world was just like every week I would go. I was like 14. And that was just part of a normal life back then. Magazines with pointing out people's cellulite and bodies on the beach and the amount of shaming and the way that we would find our own kind of false sense of confidence through shaming other women. That was such a strong cultural narrative at the time. So it wasn't just that I didn't have that role in my family or friends, but everybody was going through it, you know, everybody. So I didn't want her to go through that. And I was adamant. I was like, I have to heal. Like everything that I feel insecure about, I have to heal it now. I have to go through this process for her. I just know, and I knew that she would learn from how I am, how I act, how I show up in the world, not from what I tell her. I have to be what I want her to be. That was the biggest thing for me. It was like, I can't just, for the integrity piece, like I can't just be someone who feels insecure and puts herself down, doesn't believe in herself, and then tells my daughter to believe in herself and cheerleads her. It doesn't work like that because she's going to see a mom that is telling her one thing, but doing something else entirely. And she's going to get confused. So I was like, I have to embody every single thing that I want her to have for herself. And that was amazing because when you love someone unconditionally, you want the best for them. And why don't we love ourselves in the same way? Why do we struggle with that so much? And she really taught me about unconditional love. Oh, there's so much. I could go on for years talking about motherhood and like how it changed me and what she's taught me and what she's inspired in me. But she's just like my angel. Quick word from this week's sponsor, Explore Learning. Explore Learning are the leaders in personalised learning. So they help children learn at a pace and level that is unique to them using an adaptive curriculum. So like me, Explore Learning believes that every child has a unique, amazing mind. So learning needs to be personalised to them. Now, as we all know, sometimes those unique needs aren't always met in a really busy classroom. And that is where Explore Learning comes in. They use an adaptive curriculum that introduces children to what they need to know when they need to know it. Their tuition, whether online or in centre, is delivered by amazing expert tutors who work really hard to build trusting relationships with the children, which helps engage them in the lessons and helps them get the most from their learning. So if you want to help your child unlock the joy of learning this year, then you can save £50 at Explore Learning from the 14th of Jan to the 25th of Feb. Tuition is available in 95 Ofsted registered vibrant learning centres throughout the UK or online at explorelearning.co.uk. That's explorelearning.co.uk. That idea of the integration and having that integrity of being who we want our children to become, I just feel like that should be what we teach parents. I really feel passionately about that. And then the next step to that, of course, is, okay, well, how? And I think there's so much talk about healing. You know, it's incredible, as you say, compared to what our parents had. That word wasn't even used. That would be used about, you know, a cut on your hand. Like healing what? What are you talking about? What did that process look like for you? Because I know what it looked like for me. I know what it looked like. You know, it's different for every single person. Where did you start? Like you talked about spirituality, but obviously that's one piece of a bigger 
puzzle. What else were those elements? For me, it was just that in that moment, so just before I had Esme and I started to take it seriously, I got my first coach. I've never not had a coach since. Like I've never not had a mentor. I've had about probably around eight different mentors over the last five years. I put my money in my own healing. People will spend three grand on a holiday where they go and they get pissed for the week and they come home feeling shit. But then they'll hear three grand for a coaching course or three grand for a mentorship and they'll go, that's way too expensive. I'm not spending that. That's crazy. And I think I just put my value and invested in myself. I saw so much value had my first coach, my life changed. It was like flipped upside down with what she taught me, the shit that I worked through with her and the things that I learned. And I was like, this really works. There's nothing more valuable than this. And then that was it. Like people, my friends joke, it's like, you've always got a mentor or coach. And I'm like, I know. And I fucking love it because they push me, they stretch me. I think that there is an unhealthy obsession with healing also. And I do want to say that I think that becoming obsessed with always trying to heal makes out for kind of this culture where we all believe we're broken and we're not and we're all trying to fix ourselves and we're all frantically running around going oh my god I need to heal and it's like no it's not like that I think that we have to kind of drop that pressure because with that comes a lot of self-judgment and that just kind of fuels the pain we're already in in some areas so I would say be very wary of that like I don't get coaches and mentors to heal because I think I'm broken. I've worked through a lot of my limits, but I now more look to them for expansion. So it's not like I'm trying to fix myself. It's not like I'm trying to keep going back into the past, although I've done a lot of inner child work, but it's about expansion, about looking to the future, about pushing myself into more, but also enjoying the journey along the way. Like I love where I'm at. And if I can be at peace with where I am and reach for more, there's a sweet spot in the middle where you get to actually enjoy life. It's not like oh, I hate where I am right now and I've always got to get somewhere else and I'm so shit right now and I have to heal and then I'll be worthy. And it's that can become its own really kind of like exhausting cycle where you're just chasing your tail all the time. Yeah, my mentorships and coaching is I did the kind of like deep healing around the eating disorders and the very low self-worth and body image issues and all of that stuff. But once I'd kind of cleared through that, through hypnosis and coaching and therapy didn't work for me. I don't like talking therapy. I like somatic work. I'm a big feeler. And for me, somatic work, which is like, for anyone who's listening, doesn't know, it's like where you go into the body and you connect with emotions that are trapped inside the body and you speak to them and you, you move them through, you move them out. I found talking therapy was just too much of going around in a circle and there wasn't actually any deeper healing going on. So there's loads of different ways. I experiment a lot and I just put value in investing in myself, whether that's like a 40 pound, something I see online that piques my interest or it's like a retreat or it's working with someone one-on-one. There's so many different ways to do it. That's where I put my money, a lot of it, (laughs) over holidays and stuff. You know, I just enjoy it. I'm passionate about it. But you're right, it looks different for everyone. Different things will work for different people. It's so true what you're saying, isn't it? And again, it's my experience as well. I think it's so easy to say the words, I want to be different and I want to not feel this stress and I want to not feel this guilt. Who doesn't want that? But then I think it's an entirely different leap to then put your money, which might be incredibly limited, your time, which might be incredibly limited in order to access those things. I do also think that we have a problem in the Western world in that it is really expensive often to access 
this type of work. And I think we know what the waiting times are like in the NHS for mental health support, particularly around maternal mental health. I do think that the system is broken because there'll be lots of people listening going, no, Zoe, I want to, but I haven't got three grand, you know, like you guys have, or I haven't even got 40 pounds. And that's where I would start with the apps and stuff. That's where I would go. YouTube, Insight Timer, books, podcasts, like this podcast. Like I often say that to mothers, like I've got 300 episodes with leading experts on this stuff. And it's not the same. It's not the same as having someone sat with you, but it's good while we're trying to offer, you know, more and more as a society, more support in this space. We just weren't taught this. This should be core curriculum, you know, understanding worth. And even the finances stuff as well, that should be as well. But again, I would say when I was broke and I started from scratch and I was in debt, I started with books. You can even go to the library and get books in the library, borrow them, it's free. There is so much free stuff online now, YouTube. You can literally spend the day on YouTube, just searching videos from people and you can learn so much. I learned so much on YouTube. My first coach, I actually took out alone <laughs> to pay for her because I didn't have the money but I made that money back this is the other thing as well you have to know that you can trust the person that you're invested in to get you the results I had to put a lot of faith in that I had to take out a loan to pay for her and then within I'd say about two months that money came back double to me because of the I believe because of the mindset shift and the way I opened myself up to more and the way my self-worth changed so there is an element of taking a leap I know everybody's in different situations and it is hard but there are resources and there is so much free stuff out there to change your life. Before you even think about investing in someone one-on-one to do anything deeper, a lot can be done with what's already out there. And I have spent days on YouTube still now. Like I just get, if I'm learning about something new, which I always am, so I'm obsessed with it. I will. It's amazing. It is amazing what you can learn. And I think time as well, we often don't think of time as a resource, but of course it is. And we can spend our time, you know, if if it's really important to shift guilt or worth, spending time there instead of watching that box set is again, like an investment in yourself. And it's hard. It's really hard. I think particularly for mothers, you know, because we are so exhausted and time is so short and there are, you know, the responsibility is crazy and the invisible load and the domestic load and it's huge. It's definitely not easy, is it? No, I remember now and Esme was like four months old and I was like determined to get into a meditation and journaling practice because it was my only me time that I could have all day. I used to go to bed at like 7 p.m. when she went to bed and then I would get up at five. So I, I read this book called The 5 a.m. Club and I was like between like five, six, seven, she was always fast asleep in the mornings. And I love mornings. I'm like a proper morning person. So I was like, if I can get up at five, I can get two hours of me time in before the day even starts. So I started going to bed at like seven o'clock and then getting this big sleep. And she would wake up during the night, but I was getting enough sleep. And that's really where my life started to change. And I do think you have to look for solutions because if you're honest with yourself, how much time do you spend scrolling Instagram every day? You know, where's that hour or two hours going? And you have to value wanting to change. If you don't value it enough, you're very comfortable with where you are and you're in that kind of like arm stuck and that kind of like helpless mindset, then you won't take action because you don't value the change enough. Like I really wanted it. (laughs) Like I really wanted to change my life and I would have done anything to make it happen. So I think that's like the thing where it's like, you have to find that value in it. Whereas like I was saying this the other day on a call with a friend, about how much we value things. And it was like, for me, starting a meditation practice was really about wanting to feel peace because I had such bad anxiety. 
And I was struggling to figure out how to meditate, where to start, what to do. And a lot of people get stuck at that point where they're like, but I don't know where to start. How do I do it? I don't know. And they get stuck there because they're like, oh, I don't have any answers. And then if someone came along and said to you, you know, I'll give you a million pounds every day if you sit down to meditate, then you'd be like, well, yeah, that's the easiest money I'll ever make, you know? So I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get on Google and I'm going to I'm going to go on YouTube and I'm going to reach out to people. I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to make it work because the value is there. You're like, this is a million pounds a day. Of course I'm going to show up. So you have to value the outcome. Like for me, in a piece was worth more than a million pounds because it was like, I don't think I could have a happy life if I didn't feel peaceful. You know, anxiety was one of the hardest things I had to face every single day. Panic attacks, like to me, peace was, there was no amount of money that could buy peace. So I put that much value on it and I figured it out because I was like, peace means that much to me. It's like someone coming to me and saying, I'll give you a million pounds every day if you sit down to meditate. And that's the value that I gave to it. And I think when you give something that much value, you find a way. I think you're right. And I wanted to ask you about that anxiety and ADHD, because I think a lot of people listening completely relate to that feeling of that you were describing, like panic attacks, feeling anxious, and you've since had an ADHD diagnosis. Tell us about what that's been like and what you've learned that you want everyone to know. The ADHD thing for me was really strange because I had never even considered it. And then um, someone messaged me on Instagram and was like, hey, I think you have ADHD. And I was like, oh, (laughs) thank you. I was a bit defensive when she sent it. I was like, excuse me, like, how can you just come into my DMs and just say that? And then it got in my head. I started looking it up and I was reading it and I was like, holy fuck, this is me. Like I was reading all of the traits, but then I got really upset and I got really triggered because a lot of my childhood, I'd felt very stupid. I'd felt stupid. That was one of my things in my childhood. I felt I couldn't focus. I got in trouble a lot at school. I forgot things really easily. There was just so many things where I felt less than other people because I was like, how come they can do that and I can't? And there was things I would notice myself doing that didn't make any sense. Like the way I went about doing things that was like the long way around. And like my logic wasn't quite there. I got quite upset because I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff from childhood that's quite painful here. I need to look at this. I couldn't get a diagnosis because the NHS waiting list was so long. I think it was like 18 months. And in that time I was waiting. And in that time I was like, I couldn't sleep. I was just up all night, like Googling symptoms and looking it up. And I don't know why, but it really got into my head and it was like, I needed to know. So I ended up paying for a private assessment, which took ages. It's like two hours, the most boring two hours of my life. And it was so funny because I saw the notes the other day when I was clearing things out. At the top, it was like, Megan was very distracted on our call. And I, was just, I remember sitting there thinking, she can't ask me any more questions. I can't do this. It's like the worst thing for someone who's got ADHD to sit on like a two hour call and be asked loads of boring questions and filling out forms and stuff. And then I got the diagnosis and everything just calmed down. I really don't understand how it validated me so much. It was like just getting that diagnosis and being told I felt accepted I felt normal I felt there was a community of people who also had been through similar things I felt understood for the first time in my life after that I just got on with it I got on with life and I started to see the things I was doing that I used to think was stupid or silly the way I was doing things or how distracted I was and how I would jump from task to task and how I couldn't focus on things and I would have this just inner compassion and be like Megs you got ADHD it's okay it's okay. This is just the way your brain works. 
And then it was like this exhale of like, it's okay. I never got medication, thought about it a few times, but I actually know now that I can manage it really well through limiting time on social media and meditation. Those two things literally helped me so much with just being able to focus for longer periods of time, less burnout, less overwhelm, less anxiety. I definitely think that my ADHD got so much worse the more I'm on social media. If I'm on there like hours a day scrolling and scrolling, I don't know, it's not good for me. How are you managing that with your job? Because obviously so much of what you do is online. Tell us, how are you putting boundaries around that? There's an app, I think it's called Opal, and it blocks you from going on apps after a certain time. I know you can actually do that on your iPhone, but this app, you'd have to actually delete the app to get your apps back. It blocks it so you can't just override it. Whereas on Instagram, you can just override it. And I've done that so many times where I'm like, oh, block this app. And then I just go override (laughs) and it's too easy. But Opal makes it harder. So I use that and it's really good. It really works. And then just being a bit more conscious, just observing myself. Like when I'm in a scroll hole, I'm like, oh, I'm in a scroll hole. Okay, put your phone down. Like I just, I'm more aware. And then I don't turn my phone on in the morning until like at least two hours after I've woken up. I call it my peace bubble. I'm like, as soon as that phone comes on, my peace bubble is burst. So I try to hang on to that time in the morning for as long as possible. It's so true. I was reading this study the other day and it was like 92% of smartphone users like grab their phone before they've taken like their first five breaths. I was like, wow, that is mind blowing. I was doing it last year, my stressful financial shitstorm of a year. I was picking up my phone every morning and going straight on social media and the stress kicked in and it was like overwhelmed. I'd be like late for the day. I'd be like late for dropping Esme in school and late waking her up and late for this and late for that and late for my meeting. And it was like just opening my phone in that first moment of the day, everything just went, it's just like chaos. But now I have my peace bubble. I wake up, phone's off, go downstairs, meditate, have my coffee, sit in silence, journal, whatever I need to do. And then when I feel ready, when I'm prepared, when I'm centered, then I turn my phone on and I do it from a really calm, conscious, connected place where I'm like, okay, I'll give myself 10 minutes on Instagram to check what's going on. I'll give myself 10 minutes to reply to any WhatsApps and I'll check my email and then I'm off again. And then I'm going to go carry on with what I need to do for the day. It's a whole different way of doing it. Again, like it's almost full circle to what we were saying. Like when times are stressful, we do sabotage with those behaviors that create that more stress, right? It's interesting. You're like, I was stressed. I stopped meditating, started checking my phone in the morning. And then you're in that cycle. And I'm just wondering, because so many women and seemingly so many women of our sort of age, our generation are being diagnosed with ADHD. What do you wish that you'd known sooner about it or about yourself? I wish they'd known at school. I wish at school they'd known why in certain subjects I just couldn't focus and I wish I didn't get in trouble for it. And I wish that schools would recognise that some kids fucking hate maths and they can't sit through it. (laughs) And there's a reason why they're staring at the wall and they keep getting in trouble. And there's certain subjects they prefer to do. Like I just loved being in art and in drama and English, anything where I could use my imagination and there was no graphs (laughs) and numbers, you know. And I really think if that had been encouraged and celebrated at school, And it was like, okay, certain kids love certain things more than others. Let them spend more time doing that. That would have been great. And I think that we should be way more aware of that now as well. I'm not sure if they are in schools now, but I think encouraging children instead of punishing them and shouting at them and shaming them, actually listening to them and being like, okay, you don't like this. That's okay. So what do you like? What expands you? What excites you? Let's follow that. 
Well, if Rishi Sunak gets his way, everyone will have to study maths till they're 18, won't they? I would sit in maths and I'd be like, I'm going to vomit. This is the worst subject. I can't even look at the page. <laughs> don't. And I don't need it now, you know? I don't think we needed to go as far as we did with maths. Basic maths I use now, but all that time wasted learning about pie, I could have been doing art and painting and, you know... And there's a difference, isn't there, between like you're saying, like theoretical mathematics and financial. Like I think you mentioned it earlier, like absolutely we should be teaching tax. We should be teaching how the financial year works. We should be teaching what happens when you have to get VAT registered and you start a company and what happens when you go into your overdraft. I take all that really seriously with my girls and so does Guy, my husband. Like We teach them about all of that because unless you want to go and do a degree in whatever, physics, maths, great, as you say, great. But it's that financial literacy that I think, you know, speaks directly to your experience as well of, you know, we can only be as empowered as we are knowledgeable. And it's like, if we don't have that knowledge, like you experienced, then we put ourselves at total risk. Yeah. And just even just having general life skills, emotional intelligence taught in schools for the kids who grew up without emotionally available parents, like compassion, empathy, how to be kind to one another, like lessons on that, like deeper lessons on that. There's just so many things that we actually have the power to change and that could be changed. I feel like I don't know what happens in schools these days. Maybe they are already taking all of this more seriously. You just talked about some of those things that you're teaching schools. What are you trying to embody for Esme? Space to be human. That's a big thing of mine. Like, I think that we live in a culture right now where everybody is extremely harsh and judgmental of each other. I talked about shadow work on another podcast recently. I'm big on shadow work. I think a lot of us are very shadowy (laughs) and we're walking around with these wounds and pain and we project it all onto each other. And I think self-awareness, empathy for yourself first and foremost, because that will then extend to others and the space and grace to be a messy, real, raw, vulnerable human who is just doing their best. And I think that's what a lot of people don't give themselves and then they don't give to others. We have a big problem with perfectionism and trying to get everything right all the time. And especially for women and the way we've been oppressed, we're so scared to express our voices. We're so scared to take up space. We're so scared to go after more, to make money. Oh, there's just so much. I think teaching Esme to be a champion of women, to know that there's enough for everyone, that what we've been taught about being jealous of each other and having to fight for the few spaces left at the top. That's old. It's not relevant anymore. And that we don't have to keep choosing that wounded way of being with other women. So yeah, I want to encourage her in so many different ways, but embody those things like self-awareness, self-healing, accountability, responsibility, love, empathy, compassion, space, grace, all the expansive stuff. I don't know you personally. I know you mainly from how you show up online and you definitely embody that for me. I remember early, early, early in Mother Kind days, you won't remember this. It would have been about five years ago and I had a tiny Instagram and I don't even know how you found it, but you were like, guys, I've just found this new podcast. It's about motherhood. I was just blown away because I was so new to this space. I was like, oh my gosh, like someone who doesn't know me is championing me and supporting and I've seen you do that over and over and over and over again and I think it's so important for the next generation 
because they're going to have to learn that level of cooperation and champion and support and given the challenges that are coming down the line. And uh, yeah, and I just wanted to honor and that you because that's absolutely what I experience of you is that support and championing and it's really beautiful to be on the receiving end of. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's um, one thing that I wish for all women, just to support each other more. And it doesn't mean you have to like everybody, but don't go out of your way to hurt people. Just knowing that there's space for us all. And actually, God, the more that you can celebrate other women, the more it even benefits your own life. You really step into that fully abundant mindset of like, there is space for us all. And when one woman wins, we all win. We're all taking our power back, you know, as a collective. And I think that's just so powerful. Mm, I agree. It's beautiful. And I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would say self-compassion. I think we're hard on ourselves. And if we had genuine, deep compassion for ourselves in every moment of this journey, which is such a roller coaster, motherhood is just so up and down. If every single mom had that really deep self-compassion I think that we'd all be so much happier that's what I give everyone it's a beautiful gift thank you so much where can someone learn a bit more about you and what you do in the world just on my Instagram really everything can be found from there it's Megan underscore Rose underscore Lane is my Instagram so yeah everything is on there workshops retreats Instagram posts free stuff just life is on there yeah, if you don't follow, then do because, you know, like you say, I completely curate my feed to people that inspire and uplift and you share some brilliantly funny stuff on stories as well. So <laughs> I love having you as part of my life in that way. So if you don't already, definitely give you a follow. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely to connect and yeah, just to get to know you a bit better. So thank you again. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon. <laughs>